the next episode of the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. The People's Republic of China has a messy history with protests, the most famous being the Tiananmen Square protest 30 years ago. Today in Hong Kong, new protests are erupting over a controversial extradition bill proposed by the Hong Kong government. We speak with UNH professor Chris Reardon, director of the Asia Studies program, about these protests and what they mean for the one country, two systems style of government. We also speak with the staff of the U.S. Commercial Service and the Office of International Commerce here in New Hampshire about the important role that international trade takes in our economy. Join me as we explore these local topics with local experts. Associate Professor Chris Reardon of UNH out in Durham. We are so excited to have you here to talk about the protests that are currently going on in Hong Kong. Thanks so much for joining us by phone today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm really happy to be able to talk to you about it today. There have been a lot of news reports about protests that are going on in Hong Kong. I'd like to have you give our audience a bit of insight into the state of Hong Kong now and its relationship with China. Well, I think everybody needs to first understand that Hong Kong is a very special place. It's a special administrative region that the British gave up as a colony back in 1997. What essentially Hong Kong is now is it's part of China. The People's Republic of China is responsible for Hong Kong's foreign policy and its defense. But for 50 years, starting in 1997, Hong Kong was given its autonomy. Now, one other thing that people need to understand is that Hong Kong, while it was a British colony, the idea is that it was a colony, and it was never a democracy. It was ruled by a bureaucrat appointed by London, and so you never had the type of democratic structures that we see here in the United States, for instance, or in Britain. And essentially, when Hong Kong was given back to China, these structures were maintained. And so today you have a chief executive, her name is Carrie Lam, who has extraordinary amount of influence, but she is not democratically elected by necessarily people, but through a group called the Executive Council and Legislative Council. Anyway, so the point being is that we're still talking about a area not directly controlled by mainland China, not directly controlled by the Communist Party, but I would say is indirectly controlled, just as the British controlled Hong Kong in the colonial period. Mainland China has had a larger degree of control of what goes on there, and increasingly their influence is being felt. They've always had influence over the economy, over who is chosen as the chief executive and so forth. But you see in the current demonstrations a desire of Hong Kong people, especially the younger people, who want to maintain a degree of independence from mainland China and are very, very concerned of the encroaching influence that they see in everyday life in Hong Kong, that there's more and more evidence of mainland China taking control over Hong Kong, and they want it to stop. 
So it seems these issues have been going on for a while now. What is different this time around? Why do they have such staying power? The straw that broke the camel's back was an initiative put forward by uh, the current uh, government under Carrie Lam to set forward an extradition bill, which would allow anybody that was accused of any crimes from outside of Hong Kong to be extradited to that particular area. It actually wasn't something directly pushed by mainland China. There had been an incident in Taiwan, in the Republic of China in Taiwan, which is also an area in dispute and civil war with mainland China. But Hong Kong and Taiwan have had a very interesting and very useful economic and political relationship. When Carrie Lam put this forward, the people in Hong Kong saw this not as a problem between Hong Kong and Taiwan, but as a potential threat to Hong Kong's sovereignty that they feel that the mainland Chinese Communist Party is increasingly challenging. Uh, it started when they set up a border crossing, uh, not at the border between Hong Kong and mainland China, but actually a train station was being established in downtown Hong Kong, and they were going to allow mainland communist officials to carry out all types of customs. This created all types of issues because the Hong Kong people did not like the idea of these customs people now being in the middle of Hong Kong. When Carrie Lam put forward the idea of the extradition bill, people rose up. The predominant attitude, both within, I think, the press and scholarship, that Hong Kong people are not really interested in politics. And that's in part because if you've ever been there, you'll see that it's one of the most capitalist places in the world. The new generation of Chinese living in Hong Kong feel differently. They realize that if they don't stand up to these encroachments from the PRC, that their futures are going to be endangered, that they feel that they needed to say something, and they did so. So this is not the first time that Hong Kong has demonstrated against mainland China. Can you tell us about other times in which they've risen up to fight for their rights? So their demonstrations have been carried out in Hong Kong over the past years, especially since the uh, Tiananmen incident of June 4th, 1989, where there were hundreds, if not thousands, of people killed, not just in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, but also incidents happening all across the mainland. Outside of demonstrations every year commemorating the Tiananmen incident, the 6-4 incident, as they call it, there have been other sporadic demonstrations. Back in 2014, there was something called the Umbrella Movement, in which, again, young people were involved in demonstrating in Hong Kong, raising objections to the encroachment of mainland China, as well as calling for greater democracy. So the Hong Kong people have not been complacent They've been standing up, especially the newer generation. And now you see almost every day reports coming out, not just of uh, mass demonstrations in downtown Hong Kong, but also throughout areas in Hong Kong, up in the new territory, so forth. There's been a lot of reporting about the concerns of the Chinese government with these protests, as well as other countries. Is this something that people should be aware of and should be concerned about? So this is something in which Beijing is very concerned about. I'm not sure that people in the United States are aware of this. We used to think, well, Hong Kong is all kind of British. Hong Kong has a very strong American influence. We've used it as the gateway to enter into mainland China ever since China began a more aggressive opening to the outside world. Not just the United States, but many European and Asian countries are based in Hong Kong, a major financial center. 
with these demonstrations are beginning to shake the confidence of foreign businesses because they worry what mainland China might do. And in fact, there have been film coming out about uh, the mainlanders organizing the People's Liberation Army uh, forces on the other side of the border. And uh, there's been also a, a reminder that the People's Liberation Army forces that are based in Hong Kong can be called by the local government if the local government feels that civil unrest is threatening all of Hong Kong. So I am hoping that things will not precipitate into a mainland military presence on the streets of Kowloon and of Central. These reminders that the PLA can be used on the ground in Hong Kong have come in recent days. What has changed over the past few days to precipitate this change? The situation is starting to ramp up. Over the weekend, there was a group of protesters that protested in front of the mainland Chinese representative in Hong Kong. While these demonstrations have not been publicized in mainland China, they did publicize pictures of how the emblem of the PRC was defaced and so forth, showing that the motherland was under attack in Hong Kong. What the mainlanders are not showing, but what has really shaken many people, are pictures of uh, pro-mainland Chinese groups, apparently many of the members of the triads, you know, the Chinese form of the mafia, in the new territories that attack people getting off of the subway on Sunday night. Many of the demonstrators were wearing black, but not only were these triad members and others who were wearing white t-shirts were attacking anybody wearing black, they were attacking anybody coming out of the subway. And the Hong Kong police apparently did not, not apparently, they did not respond. They did not respond. And they're now saying, well, they didn't have enough people. Well, there was a foreknowledge that this was going to be happening. The stories are coming out now that people were told to stay away from this, that the, the triad's going to be attacking this. And the Hong Kong police, it's questionable whether they didn't know anything about this. They have been under lots of pressure from these demonstrations, trying to keep order, trying not to attack. But the area where this took place, up in the New Territories, is a very special area. Not as foreigners, i.e. anybody coming from New Hampshire, they're going to Hong Kong. They're probably not going to go up into this area. It's a very traditional, different area than you would have in Central, where you would see Indians and Americans and British and, and Japanese and so forth. The question has been, why didn't the police step in? And to what degree were the triads acting on their own accord? Because they traditionally, strangely enough, have had a very strong relationship with the Chinese Communist Party. Were they just doing the bidding of the Communist Party? Or were they acting on their own or what? So the situation in Hong Kong right now is worrisome, to say the least. The escalation of the triad involvement, the vision of the People's Liberation Army assembling outside of the Hong Kong border and people being reminded that the People's Liberation Army had the right to intervene in Hong Kong affairs if the local government asked for their help. And of course, then you have some local uh, government elected officials who are egging on these uh, triad members. So it's a complicated situation. What has the U.S. reaction been to all of this? Unfortunately, the Trump administration has been uh, a bit quiet on this whole thing. President Trump has made the comment about that he thought that Xi Jinping has been handling the situation well. However, the outgoing head of the American Consul General 
was not allowed to make comments on the topic. He's uh, retired, and he actually did come out with a statement in which he was saying that Hong Kong should not be forgotten by the American public or by anybody, that it's an example of the way that Asia should be. We should not be sacrificing Hong Kong because we're more concerned about our trade relations and negotiating with mainland Chinese. So there's a fear that the U.S. government is, or should I say the Trump administration, is not seriously analyzing the threat that mainland China poses to democracy in Hong Kong, as well as already sacrificed our concerns about uh, human rights in mainland China itself. With some people in China claiming that these protests are U.S.-led, how do you view the future relationship between China and the U.S. on this issue? Well, that's like a set phrase by the Chinese Communist Party. That's always foreigners that are doing this. They don't want to admit that it could be Chinese themselves. It could be Hong Kong people themselves that are asking to preserve their own freedom. As just said, uh, the United States government essentially told our representative there not to make any comments about the situation. Vice President Pence was supposed to make comments about it. He didn't say anything. The problem that the Chinese Communist government has is that, first off, this is a very sensitive year. We're talking about the anniversary coming up of the founding of the People's Republic of China back in 1949. There are quite a few anniversaries. Let's, let's just put it like that. I'm going to go through all of them. But the government is very concerned that if there's any type of disruption, that it would escalate. And the idea that the Communist Party has complete control over mainland China is something that, of course, the Communist Party would want you to think. But in reality, they are dealing with over you know 1.3 billion people who have all different types of concerns, and that the Communist Party, even though the current leader has taken far more authoritarian control than his predecessors, you know, harking more back to the period of Mao Zedong, the degree of relative freedom in mainland China for people to think for themselves and to do things is far greater than it was in the 1950s and 60s. So there's a fear from the Communist Party that they don't want too much of a disruption. But they have a dilemma because they also realize that Hong Kong remains a key financial center for the Communist Party. So they do not want any instability to take place. And they also realize if you have pictures of the PLA marching down Connaught Square or overlooking Victoria Peak, that this would reverberate throughout the world community. And the impact right now of the trade war you know, the press has been underplaying this a bit, but there has been a degree of economic uh, distress. And should there be political disruption, there might be serious implications for China's political and financial stability. So on June 16th, Carrie Lam had said that the process of putting this bill into place had been halted and that the bill would die a natural death. So can you walk us through why on July 24th, over a month later, these protests are still going on, what the demands are, what they're looking for? What they're looking for is for her to say not that it's going to die a natural death, but that she is going to withdraw the bill. There's a difference. The protesters fear that just like the umbrella demonstrations of 2014, that after a while, things go back to normal, and then Carrie Lam will bring this up again. You know, that's a real concern. But I think it's gone much further than that. Several things have been happening 
in Hong Kong since 1997. Not only are things getting more expensive for the average Hong Kong person, but that there's this perception that mainlanders are increasingly moving in and it's making their lives more difficult. I remember talking to a waitress using Mandarin and she said, well, first off, she had to learn Mandarin. Remember that in Hong Kong, they speak a different dialect. They speak Cantonese. Now in Hong Kong, you can go everywhere and you will hear Mandarin. But I was talking to this waitress and she was saying, well, all the waiters and waitresses now are coming from the mainland and they're taking these jobs. Well, not only do they seem to be taking lower level jobs, but also they're buying up a lot of goods and then sending them back to mainland China. There are certain goods that have high tariffs if they're sold directly in China, but if they go through these middlemen, then they're able to avoid some of these uh, taxes. But there's been this fear that these mainlanders, whether it is their economic influence or taking their rights away, Carrie Lam and the sphere of extradition, that the rights of the normal Hong Kong people, and especially the young people, are being threatened. Think about it. Hong Kong, for decades, might not have been a bastion of democracy. It was a magnet for Hong Kong refugees, both economic and political refugees. That's what made Hong Kong. All of these people after 1949, the rich people coming down from Shanghai, and the 1950s and 60s, Poor people coming over the border because of starvation, for instance, during the Great Leap Forward. Many of them rushed across that border to get to Hong Kong. Well, now those migrants have made a life for themselves. They don't consider themselves coming from mainland China. They consider themselves being Hong Kong people, which is far more integrated with the West, with the world economy than the mainland is. And they, many of them are not seeing themselves as part of the People's Republic of China. And that's something that the Communist Party is having difficulty trying to get the young people to not think of themselves as Hong Kong people, but to think of themselves as Chinese people. You know, the normal American person has no concept of these competing identities. They just think that China is all China. No, they're various different groups. And the Communist Party is concerned about being able to maintain control over all of these groups. That's why I'm a little pessimistic about what's going on right now in Hong Kong. Great. Thank you so much for giving us your insights and time. Again, we're here with Professor Chris Reardon of the University of New Hampshire. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Let's just hope that everything goes better than I'm hoping. For a long time, New Hampshire has played an important role in international trade. From 1944, with the Bretton Woods Accords, to today, where over 170,000 jobs are dependent on international trade, the state can trace much of its economic success to its trading partners around the world. Here we dive deeper into how the U.S. Commercial Service and the Office of International Commerce help businesses to go international. Thank you for joining us. We're here with Justin Olosky, the director of the U.S. Commercial Service in New Hampshire, and Tina Kassam, the program director of the Office of International Commerce. Thank you both for joining us. We have you here by phone, which is the first time doing two people by phone, which will be interesting. Why don't we first start off by having me ask you about the overall importance of international trade to New Hampshire's economy? You know, I looked at some of the statistics 
And we had another record year for exports, right, in 2018. We're doing a decent clip for 2019 as well, so over $5.3 billion worth of New Hampshire exports. And that's primarily manufactured goods. We have a harder time really digesting and really generating are the numbers that are attributable to New Hampshire services. So engineering services, financial services, as well as international tourists coming to New Hampshire, spending on hotels and restaurants. That figure also doesn't include folks who would be foreign nationals coming to New Hampshire for their education as well. So both secondary education, some of the private schools that New Hampshire has. So clearly overall, this has a huge impact on the New Hampshire economy and to the benefit of the New Hampshire economy and is a huge economic plus with job creation as well in the state. So our economy tends to be good right now, and that's great. A lot of folks have domestic opportunities to sell, but we always encourage them as there are fluctuations in the domestic market. We encourage them to look international. It helps to even out those business cycles, and it's a huge revenue generator and a new revenue stream, especially for our small and medium-sized enterprises perfect example of those diverse revenue streams be seen as, as recently as the last recession. And that's where a lot of companies kind of sat up and said, oh yeah, that's right, maybe we can take a look at other markets. And I think that's when a lot of our work really came to light, started to encourage more businesses to look overseas. And they've continued to do that, which has been really positive for us and a great testament to how much can come from an international market. What is it, 95% of all consumers outside the U.S.? It really does seem to make sense to be exporting and really opening your goods up to these new markets. That's a great point, Tim, because, you know, I don't think that 95 is going to be static either. You're seeing, you know, traditional growth in already strong economies like the U.S. market, but obviously there are so many emerging markets as well, and so that if you're not looking at international at this point, it'll be a competitive disadvantage because you will lack that revenue stream. I mean, not everyone is ready or should be going international. If they don't have buyers in Massachusetts or Maine, you know, you, that's obviously a low-hanging fruit. But as far as international markets, at least to begin, like Canada, like Mexico, if you're ready to export, those are two markets that you have to take a look at. It actually makes you stronger domestically as well because you do have that additional revenue stream, you are balancing out those business cycles that occur. And so, like I said, if you're ready to go international, no better time to do that uh, when the U.S. economy is strong because you're already starting to build those partnerships abroad that you can rely on in leaner times. Justin, can you tell us about the services of the U.S. Commercial Service? And then Tina will we'll hear from you about the Office of International Commerce. Yeah, I'm so glad to get off the economic side of this. (laughs) Not our forte, right, Tina? (laughs) So as far as what we do, I mean, we can provide statistics and market research to our clients here, to exporters in New Hampshire. But our primary focus is really market-driven. We have offices both across the United States but also globally as well. So we cover pretty much every U.S. state. And then we have about... 80 offices internationally. Those are housed within the U.S. embassies and consulates. So I am basically the domestic liaison for our overseas staff. What they do is they focus in on industry sectors. Aerospace and defense is one example, super important here for our New Hampshire exporters. So what they will do 
as an example, a defense or aerospace client would come to my office and say, geez, Justin, you know, we hear there's a lot of opportunity in the Moroccan aerospace market or the Indian aerospace market. How can you help me access those markets? So we will get onto a phone call with the embassy in Rabat, with the embassy in New Delhi. We will use our local expertise to advise, guide our New Hampshire exporter in how to enter that market. It could be market research. More often than not, it's also in identifying distribution channels, whether that be through traditional distributors, value-added resellers. Depending on the industry, the term is, can vary, but these are channel partners that we can identify for New Hampshire exporters overseas. Now, that's obviously a pretty advanced stage of it. So fortunately, we have a fantastic partnership with the state of New Hampshire. That's not something that you see in every state, so it's something that Tina and I really value, <laughs> and we try to work together as often as possible so that we can benefit our New Hampshire exporters. The way I look at our office is we'd like to be the first touch point for companies when they have questions in dealing with anything with international commerce or international trade. And even though we don't have the answers for everything, we have such an amazing export ecosystem and network within the state. We can help answer the client's questions or our company's questions through our various partners. And so while we have a policy that's no wrong door policy, we do like to be one of the first touch points because depending on what your question is and where you are in your international planning, whether you're still coming up with a concept of a business that you want to start, or if you're a little more advanced and you're ready to go into a new market, we have different partners within the state that can help with that. So you've got the Small Business Development Centers, you have the U.S. Small Business Administration, their main office here. We have an entity made up of private sector partners in the Granite State District Export Council, and then we have connections with Exxon Bank. So all different partners that can focus and help solve the issues for certain areas every step of the way for a company to start to embark on an international market. The way I also look at commercial service, in addition to being a fantastic partner, they really are our international arm. The state of New Hampshire does not have international offices in different locations, and I don't think we necessarily need that because we've got such a great partner and such a great service that's available on the federal side with access to resources that we probably wouldn't be able to have as a state. And so that's kind of one function of our office is to kind of catch and determine what kind of assistance a company needs and being able to point them in the right direction. We also focus on some things that the commercial service can't focus on or doesn't have the bandwidth to focus on, which is training. So helping New Hampshire companies get up to speed on basics of exporting. That's one thing that we, we try to push at during the fall season is a couple different programs and series and lectures about the basics of exporting to help those come in and start to become a little more familiar with what they need to do to get their house in order before they start embarking on, on bigger endeavors. 
But when it also comes to training, we do look to commercial service and our other federal partners on issues that are pretty specific and niche. So if there are policy issues, if there are trade agreements that are coming up that people need to know about or should be aware of, different programs that are available to exporters, that's where we can tap into, again, those federal partners and then to be able to broadcast that information out to the New Hampshire company base. The other area that we are able to assist some companies in is any import questions. And while a lot of our work is focused on export promotion, we do get the odd questions about imports. And again, we have some resources that we can tap into to help answer those questions. So, like I said earlier, kind of main conduit for a lot of the questions to be able to point folks into the right resources. Tim, I wanted to pick up on one of the points that Tina had mentioned about the Granite State District Export Council. It's kind of an unknown entity in fairness here in New Hampshire, but we try to highlight it as best we can because they really play a critical role. Tina's agency could start our clients out with some market research and market knowledge. They can pass and graduate onto some of our services. You know, we can help them identify an agent or distributor. But what's interesting is we're both in the public sphere and we don't have that private sector knowledge. As an example, I think this is a fairly good one, we can help you identify a partner in India, as an example. We can help you identify that distributor. But as far as constructing an agent-distributor agreement, as far as understanding the business practices and what happens, the protocols in the business in India, We're a little more limited because we actually don't work directly with the Indian companies. The Granite State District Export Council is primarily made up of private sector entities here in New Hampshire that are vetted and approved through the U.S. Secretary of Commerce's office. And what they can do is they come in and actually provide the private sector consultation and counseling for our New Hampshire exporters that, generally speaking, Tina and I can't experience firsthand. That would be something like very, very detailed, nuanced items like U.S. export controls, applying for licenses, how that works. It could also be something as simple as, geez, have you ever had the experience of signing an agent or distributor in India? What happens? What are they looking for in the legal agreement? Are there pitfalls that I should avoid? And that's why we can rely on these folks that are part of the Granite State District Export Council to provide that counseling to our clients. So it's a really nice value add, I personally think, and we want New Hampshire exporters to take advantage of that more and more. There's this great house of knowledge and expertise. We have the occasional client who might use it, but we just need to do it more often because these folks really know what they're talking about. Yeah, it really seems like New Hampshire has a great number of resources for people to access if they are looking to go international, and I think that's that's wonderful. Can you guys give us some of the common pitfalls that companies need to overcome before going abroad? How much time do we have again, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm going to focus in on one just because, obviously, over 18 years with the Department of Commerce and U.S. Commercial Service, there is one very, very similar theme that has occurred in each of the markets. And it's that doing business abroad is not always like doing business in America. And I think you may have heard this before, Tina. I don't know if you agree completely as being the most important factor, but you really have to work the local market. You have to understand the local market. 
you may travel to a country and you may be ready to sign that contract. You may be ready to make that initial sell, but it's all about relationship building. They want you to meet their family. They want to take you out to dinner. They want it to be a slower process of building that relationship so that you may not experience a sell for a year or two. So I think that's the one thing that most of our offices abroad have talked about with our clients is that you have to be patient. You have to understand those local market conditions, those cultural conditions, and this isn't just like doing business with someone in the U.S. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I think I boil my three tips down to it's relationship building, definitely, and then also probably the first thing is if you're not selling domestically, you're not ready to sell internationally because one of the first questions that I've noticed in doing some of the joint counseling that we do is they'll ask who your domestic clients are. And if you don't have a good strong list of those, I think folks in the international market will be a little more hesitant to jump in full on with you on a new endeavor. I think my final word of advice would be don't bite off more than you can chew. It's okay to take one market at a time. And it's okay for that one market to take a few years to develop because like Justin said, it all boils down to that relationship building. And there are so many factors that impact international sales, currency fluctuations, political, you know, relationships, so on and so forth. And the thing that sort of overcomes all of that is that international network that you have, the relationship building. So one final question for the two of you. It's a little bit of a fun one, I hope. What is the coolest thing that you've seen exported from New Hampshire? We're very proud of our clients, but there's one client that has been to every single continent. And so I'm going to go back to that because I think it is cool, but it also sets a worldwide standard. And that is our ground penetrating radar that's manufactured by a client here in New Hampshire. It's rare to have products in Antarctica as an example. (laughs) So that's something, obviously, it's a feather in their cap. And they have been so aggressive. They have been you know, so successful internationally, so many different potential applications across a broad range of industry sectors, all in that non-destructive testing equipment market. I mean, they really set an example, not only for New Hampshire manufacturers and exporters, but they set the standard nationally as well. Yeah, I think I'd have to agree. (laughs) I feel like this question is asking you who's your favorite child. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to choose. But that story of that New Hampshire company, I mean, all of our clients do amazing work, and it's it's great to watch them break into new markets and to see some of the really interesting solutions that come out in New Hampshire is fantastic. But I would have to say, since, since that company has been on every continent, has done so much, and they really have set the standard, I would have to agree with Justin on that one. It's, it's one of the coolest stories we have. Yeah, and I, I, look, I took a look at the markets that we've shipped to so far through May of 2019, and we've shipped to like 160-plus markets. So that just goes to show you it's not just one or two clients and speaks to your point, Tina. Not every state is going to ship to that many markets, and it speaks to the cutting-edge technologies, the advanced manufacturing that New Hampshire exporters provide to the world market. There is a demand here. There's something about that. Yankee ingenuity that still very much is appropriate to describe our New Hampshire exporter base. You know, I was like, oh, Kiribati's on there. I mean, (laughs) gosh, what went there? But we're there, and it's a New Hampshire product, which is super cool. 
Well, thank you both for joining us today. Again, we're here with Justin Olosky of the U.S. Commercial Service here in New Hampshire and Tina Kassam of the Office of International Commerce. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you, Tim. As always, thank you so much for listening to our Global in the Granite State podcast, a production of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. You can check out previous episodes on our website at www.wacnh.org. Thank you.